0: .NET Rocks episode 835 with guests Thiago Silva and Jeff Hewitt. Recorded live Friday, January 4th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard.
1: ACI. Thank you very much. Happy New Year, and welcome back to .dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and uh, we got a
0: good show for you coming up, talking about the cloud. Hey, Richard, what's up? I am, you know, getting back into the swing of things. Digging out my mailbox is what I'm really doing. You know, you ignore your email for a few days, and holy man. I uh, had a great
1: holiday with the fam, and um, I started a a new project. Oh? Yeah. I call it Project Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You ever have a project like that, that just like, in in scope is just so big and it's going to take so long? Yeah. And you think, uh, we just got to come up with a name for this that transcends what it's actually all about. Well... So, uh, I won't say much until I have something to show, but okay. it's it's going to be awesome and it has to do with music, of course. And it employs a lot of musicians around here. And uh well, I'll I'll keep you posted on that. Hey, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? Which
0: has turned into, you know, better know the community. I you know, summing through some comments on the site, I saw somebody say, "Why don't you just call it Carl's crap?" Yeah, Carl's <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Carl's five minutes of Google. There you go. <laughs> uh, Bing it with google.com.
1: Sorry. Well, anyway, I want to uh, highlight a, uh, a website where the Microsoft Office team is introducing Access 2013 as a cool new rapid development tool for the cloud. Really? If you go to tinyurl.com slash access on Azure, there's a, a little short video uh, by some a program manager on the Access 2013 team who is showing you how to use the new Office tools and specifically Microsoft Access 2013 with SQL Azure hmm. and all of the, the cool things that you can do with that. So there it is. It's kind of interesting. And uh, I think the only thing Accessy about it is the name
0: Access. You think so, huh? Yeah. And, it, you know, question number one comes to my mind is, all right, this or Light Switch?
1: Yeah, I, you really got to just take a look at it. Sure. I mean, we've talked a lot about Light Switch. You know what that does, but but nobody's really talking a lot about access. So you know, it might help. Might help your DBA guys or your sort
0: of Cody DBA guys uh, access and work with uh, SQL Azure. Yeah, always tough to dig this case with the developers, but you know, bottom line is if it works, it works. It's interesting to yeah. give it a spin.
2: Yep. Cool. There you go.
0: I love it. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 812, and that is the one we did with Michelle Rubastamante on the road trip when she was talking about using Azure in her startup. And this comment's mostly about startups, but I thought it was a real effective one It speaks to Azure anyway. Uh, it's from Richard Rukima, who says, I just finished listening to the show. As I've gone through the startup cycle once, it was refreshing to hear that it was not only I that made the mistake of over-engineering a software product. As strange as it sounds to hear, startups often try to sell what they have built and fail to listen to what the customer wants to buy. Mm. As I remember my experience, I recall more than once telling anyone who would listen that the client I presented to just didn't hear, quote, understand what I was telling them So uh, as to how great my product was. Rather than listening to what they were actually prepared to buy, I wanted them to buy what I had to sell. I think that that is a real difference between marketing types and founders, developers. Marketing people understand that their job and only focus is to sell something, they listen carefully to what the client is prepared to buy, and adapt their pitch accordingly to increase their chance of winning cash flow. Founders and developers only want to sell what they've been working on because if they don't, the work is somehow degraded in some manner. Since my startup days, I've been mentoring and coaching startups to minimize their feature set, the quote, minimum viable product, and to listen to what the customer actually wants. And most importantly, to invoice the customer to see if they are really prepared to purchase what they want. With cash flow, all things are possible. And, and you know, I buy into your idea, Richard. That in the end, the real everybody has an opinion, but the real vote comes with dollars. When they're prepared to spend money on something, then you've done something right. Uh, it's a, an interesting challenge, and I, and I think smart people, as software developers tend to have a vision of what they want to build and build it irrespective of what people necessarily want. It's such a human foible.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a great TED Talk by Ernesto Ciroli. Want to help someone? Shut up and listen. (laughs) I tiny URL'd it while you were reading that comment. Oh, yeah. It's tinyurl.com slash listen. So this is a guy who, uh, went to Africa to try to help people. Right. And like most projects where, you know, the West goes to Africa to try to help fails miserably. And, uh, he basically just says, you know, the secret to helping people is to listen to them and not to, you know, jump into the solution to, to give them access to information and people. That's really what they need. Uh, so anyway, but that's just in his case, but you know, it's a, it's a human foible yeah we want to be the heroes and we want to jump in there and get it done as soon as possible
0: and establish our uh you know our 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 position if you will well and you think about how much energy you've already poured into building a piece of software you know actually getting to that point you've got a big commitment and clearly had a vision already and the idea that you would toss that vision aside is is not palatable it's pretty hard you know you've Mm. The f- you've just shown this thing to the first time for the customer, but you've been living with it for months and months and months. Right. So I think the basic idea that certainly Michelle talked about and Richard also is emphasizing here is this spend as little time as necessary to get something to show so that it's got a smaller barrier to going in a different direction. Right. Anyway, love it. Good. Thank you, Richard. Great comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And Absolutely. if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET com. And before
1: we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 300 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts and people that appear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including 10 courses or more by now on Windows Azure. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start just $29 a month. And with that, let me have the pleasure to reintroduce Tiago Silva and introduce for the first time Jeff Hewitt. Tiago is an architect with Credera a Dallas-based consulting firm, delivering Microsoft solutions to clients that include several Fortune 500 companies. He's been developing enterprise applications, BI reporting, and web solution for the last decade. Tiago is a previous .NET Rocks guest and a published co-author and contributor on the Rocks Professional SQL Server Reporting Services series of books. He lives in Dallas with his wife and three kids and loves music and playing guitar, a noble instrument. (laughs) And Jeff Hewitt is a senior architect with Credera. He has more than 10 years of experience in technology consulting with an emphasis in Microsoft technologies. Jeff focuses on custom .NET development and SharePoint. Also lives in Dallas with his wife and five kids. Thank you for having children, smart people.
3: (laughs) Well, thanks for having
2: us back.
1: We need more smart kids. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. So you guys have done a lot A lot of work with Azure, it looks like. So you have uh, quite a a perspective to share. Uh, What I appreciate from your notes that uh, you sent us is that uh, your perspective seems to be very balanced. You have a good idea of what works well, as well as where the pain points are.
3: Yeah, we could say we looked under the rug and we, we know what's good and what's kind of bad, so...
1: What are the, what are the projects that you, you know, when you say roll up your sleeves and say, all right, let's get into Azure, what is the stuff that you do? Do you try to, to put out uh, your own sort of sites first or was there a, something that you architected that would let you exercise all of the technologies that Azure has to offer? What was your plan of attack there?
3: Well, um, this last project that Jeff and I worked on was, uh, since we're doing consulting work, uh, we largely work with our clients, and, and depending on their needs, it, you know, it dictates whether it, the cloud makes sense or not. Yeah. Uh, and, and in this case, it made total sense just for the fact that they didn't have the hardware. They had spikes in, in traffic depending on the season of the year, and, and uh, they wanted this fast and yeah. scalable. So, uh, you know, all of those things kind of scream cloud to us.
1: I guess I'm thinking about, you know, when you were first learning how everything worked and where everything was, when you when you sit down to learn, do you uh, do you architect up a, a test project, uh, you know, a research project?
4: Um, I would say, well, absolutely. I think we you know there was there was several proof of concepts up front before we got started where we uh you know we knew what the core tenets of, 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 of as as we were kind of ramping up on the Azure platform, um, you know, core tenets of the solu- of the platform that we would we would want to use, um, you know, auto scaling, the service bus, caching, all the different data repositories. Um, you know, table storage was something that we played with up front to understand. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's lots of, of of small solutions that you know kind of prototyped what the larger solutions would look like that, that we definitely play with to kind of understand some of these limitations up front. But there's no there's no substitute for really getting in there and really building something, um, you know, high transaction, high availability, scalable, right. to really find out what what, what the thing can do.
1: Yeah. yeah, and this is Jeff, right? Yeah. Yeah. takes a, a certain level of trust, you know, to just jump right in there. But uh, you guys have been, for the most part, happy with what you've been able to do.
3: Yeah, I, I think yeah. given some some pain points, you know, out of the way. I think mostly everything has been really well done. Uh, from my experience, I think it's been... Uh, I, was, I was surprised at all the features that it offered. So. Well,
1: let's start with what worked well. What works really well in Azure?
3: I think the biggest... Uh, the, the, the point where I saw Azure really shining was, you know, Jeff and I was sat in a room and the, the customer was load testing. And we projected on the screen the portal... And in real time, we were seeing these spikes, and I think, you know, being able to slide that that uh, that scale that the number of instances up uh, on demand that that worked really well. So I, I think that scaling right there was the moment where I really saw, you know, that Azure was it, this is going to work.
0: And just thinking in context of what you were doing there is incredibly hard to do in your own data center. Yeah. yeah. So you were watching
1: the traffic, and as the traffic was spiking. You basically turned a switch and and scaled it up.
4: Yeah, and I think for our clients that was huge as well. For them to be able to sit, you know, they, they're 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 so ingrained in the traditional model of either buying some some rack space somewhere or, or hosting the servers on premise. For them to be able to see, hey, you know, we're load testing and we're we're we're, we're dealing we're 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 experiencing some bottlenecks and some performance degradation. And in their mind, they're thinking, okay, well, we, what we have to do now is stop the load test. Go add servers or add memory, or you know, figure out how to boost CPU. And all we had to do was grab a slider and move it to the right. And in about five minutes, we were able to see relief in the stress uh, test.
1: That's incredible, and and like you said, you know, you want to change that rapidly so that you don't lose your audience, right? Because you have to, you have to get a whole new set of people coming back if you're taking an hour to, you know, upgrade memory and all that.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. So what else? What else does Azure do really well?
3: Well, I, I think Jeff can speak about the deployments. Um, he, yeah, he so, had some, um, some uh, initial he, struggles with it, but I think at the end, he had a good story on that.
4: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think, in the you know, in the beginning, you know, once again, kind of trying to, you know, think a little bit differently about the way you do deployments. It's not your traditional model, once again. Um, you know, you're... You know, the way I kind of think about it is as opposed to packaging your solution and deploying it on multiple machines, which is the traditional model, if you want to scale out or if you want to deploy your solution, you think about laying your software down on machines, right? Whereas in the Azure platform, you package up your solution, you put it out there, and you basically assign CPU, you assign machines basically to your solution. And so I think the whole packaging of the solution in Visual Studio where everything's kind of, you know, basically what you do when you want to deploy is you you build a package which consists of two files, an XML configuration, and then essentially a zip file with a different extension that is all your code ready to go. And you upload that, and you say, I want to deploy this. And it's all, everything's already configured. Everything's, you know, in, in the configuration is wired up to point to the correct artifacts in the Azure environment. And, it, and it's very, very simple from a change control process, which when you're dealing with larger clients, like we were dealing, on this, dealing with on this last project where they have a lot of change control processes in place, um, you know, basically moving, you know, as a developer, being able to package something up, pass that off to somebody else who has access to the system for change control purposes, and then they can very, very easily within 10 or 15 minutes get that solution up and running um, with, with uh, with uh, you know, 10 steps is, is is pretty powerful.
0: Now, can I talk a little bit about package management in general then? What happens when you have a dozen versions of your app?
4: You know, I think it works, it works the same way. You know, you, you can bring some of the traditional deployment model or you know, package management uh to to bear here as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in our solution we would we we uh you know we we stored everything in the in, in the subversion repository from a you know source code perspective. Right. Uh we would tag our builds, tag production builds, tag QA builds, tag stress builds, and then we would name our packages appropriately. Hey, this is a stress build revision or tag number, you know, one, two, three, four. Um, you know, we, we'd, we'd manage the packages that way and there'd be an audit trail or a paper trail that we'd be able to go back and say hey on this day this revision was pushed out to stress you can go get it, repackage it it's already, it's already configured and checked in You know, if you wanted to pull that back up and repackage that and rebuild that, you could.
0: So you're not counting on Azure to organize your packages for you. You've got Subversion doing that for you. And then you pick up the one you want and push it up to the instances you want to work
4: from. Exactly. You know, Azure is not going to, you know, manage your packages for you. You can push them out there to storage. You push your packages out and host them, you know, store them in the Azure environment. And then from Azure, you you know, you can have, you know, you know, in number of packages stored out there. Uh, But all the management of that from a, uh, you know, from a process perspective and from a, you know, hey, what package was pushed out yesterday kind of perspective, all that's managed outside of the Azure environment, correct?
0: That's fair. Yeah.
3: And, and I, th- I think with uh, having the control of the package management ourselves, uh, it kind of cuts back on the cost because if we, we, if we deployed several times, we would have to actually have live deployments running. Every time the deployment's running, it costs money.
1: Right. Did you guys run into an issue or a situation where, in order to to scale properly, you had to change the virtual machine size on the fly?
4: Yeah. I think that's a that was that's a, that's a great question because you know it, you you would think there's there's several different sizes for a virtual machine. You have everything from shared, where you're going to be sharing CPU with other systems on the Azure platform, or all the way up to extra large, which is you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tiago, I think extra-large is four cores and 16 gigs of RAM. So you have, you know, a small size VM, or, you know, shared size all the way up to the extra-large and everything in between, I think there's five steps in between. And you would think that, you know, throwing, you know, three or four extra-larges at a, at a problem, you know, if you have some background process running on the Azure platform that needs a lot of CPU and a lot of memory, you'd think that just throwing three or four extra-large machines, virtual machines at that problem would fix it, or would be the best solution sometimes that wasn't sometimes uh you know instead of throwing three or four extra large machines at the solution throwing you know 12 medium or smalls would actually would actually get better performance and so being able to play with kind of some of that scaling as you're as you're figuring out you know where your sweet spots are from a scaling perspective we definitely to answer your question you know experimented with different different uh vm sizes
1: and w- is it easy to change those sizes on the
4: fly that's something that's coming when we, we, you know, we know that that's, uh, talking to the TSP at least, uh, uh, with Microsoft that, that that we work with in Redmond, you know, he says that that's, that's something that's probably coming down the road. He didn't, you know, I think it's just something that's talked about there. I don't think it's on a backlog yet, but. But pretty uh, much so you, you can, can just, that.
1: you can just kill, uh, an instance and then start a new one with an, with a new,
4: yeah. You gotta, you have to redeploy if you want to change the sizes. That's so, what I mean. Yep. Yeah.
0: Now are you looking at purely from a performance perspective, doing four you know enormous instances versus twelve medium ones, or from a cost perspective.
3: I think you both apply on this I one. Know. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you're going to have larger instances, that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, but the biggest thing that, that Jeff kind of alluded to is at the end of the day, we were getting some throughput uh, bottlenecks because we had you know two to three extra large machines that we were trying to throw all of this load in. When really, you know, I think we settled it in with about twelve uh, uh, small or medium instances, uh, and that kind of took the load a lot better. Uh, and at the end of the day, the medium ones kind of washed out in cost uh, eventually, uh, versus having two or three large ones. Right. Yeah. But if you have, if you don't need the medium ones, a, a small, you know, if you have eight to ten small ones, it would probably be slightly cheaper.
1: It's really interesting, and you, you, there probably aren't any hard and fast rules, but I think that. Just uh, thinking about more uh, smaller machines rather than a few big ones is a good idea.
3: Right. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the whole concept of distributed, distributed computing, right? You, instead of having you know two, three uh, beefy machines, you just kind of spread the load across multiple small machines yeah. that uh, can do it in, in small units of work.
0: This has got to come down to software architecture, then, right? Like how you build your software and how well it actually scales.
4: Absolutely. You know, I think we ran into some of those pain points in the beginning as well. Um, well, I mean, just just the normal pain points that go along with developing, or the normal kind of process of development, where you, you know, you kind of have to go back and polish things after you build it and test and make sure everything's working well and performing well. And, um, you know, you know, we kind of knew this going into it, but we also proved it a few times that. Uh, the you know the Azure environment, even though you 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 essentially have a you know endless uh, room to grow from a scaling perspective, it doesn't it doesn't make up for bad architecture. You have right. still got to architect it well. You have still got to make good decisions mm. around memory usage and things like that. Yep.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight Controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash freestuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash freestuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for
0: supporting .NET Rocks. And are we talking about web roles here or web sites in Azure?
3: This was a cloud services, so web roles. Okay. Right? The, the This last project that we we had the, the, this experience with was all the cloud service deployments. But, but uh, under the covers, it's all VMs really so... The the architectural guidance and and those things are going to apply no matter what to whether you're doing websites or not.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a question of how different is a web role to a website.
3: I'm not sure that I that we haven't we haven't had to deal with the websites a whole lot. Um, so I can't I don't know that I can speak necessarily to the the websites experience as much as with the cloud services. Mm-hmm. I do know that with cloud services you just you get more more bang for the buck, right? You you just you get a lot more feature more capability. Yeah. For, for what you get in price.
1: Did you guys use any third-party uh, software-as-a-service tools, Apprenda, or AppDynamics, or anything?
3: Yeah, we uh, we used, uh, uh, for monitoring, we used New Relic. Okay. Um, at the end of the day, we, we were seeing uh, uh, a real need for for uh, monitoring. We uh, we spent a little bit of time with the Azure portal, and, and the new portal, and it's got some good stuff, uh, but... It only goes so far. Uh, we were getting your basic uh, CPU uh, data uh, in and out, and uh, and disk I/O out of the portal, but we needed more information. We needed to be able to correlate exceptions, and and that that just became really hard uh, by manually pouring through logs and uh, going mm. through. We uh, uh, we had a database table from Log4Net that we were using for uh, for exception handling uh, logging. Um, so we at the end of the day, we decided uh, uh, to go with New Relic for for monitoring, which um, they have a, a very solid um, software as a service offering. I was I was impressed,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and
3: I did look at App Dynamics as well. Uh, New Relic just looked a little bit uh, a little bit cleaner.
1: So did they? Um, I'm not quite sure exactly what you meant by uh, all the logging. Did they handle all the logs, or did you have to did you have to specify that they're handling your logs or what exactly? Yeah.
4: So with
3: most of these, uh, third party, uh, monitoring tools, the APM tools, um, what, what they'll do is they'll give you a, an installer. Uh, and if they if thought through this, they'll give you a new Git package and it's a lot easier to set up. Right. But, um, at the core, it's just a, a, an installer that, that, uh, you run uh, within a startup task in your Azure, uh, instances. And, uh, the, the startup task will run the installer, which uh, runs the, the MSI and and puts this uh, usually a Windows service or a, a long-running process uh, that keeps running on the server, and uh, and then it also adds some some DLLs uh, to your project, and you can add some extra sprinkle some extra code around your 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 app if you wanted to monitor specifically some areas, uh, but that server piece just sits on the server and and sends uh, monitoring data back to uh, the 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 mothership their their servers uh, to collect all of the, the server uh, monitoring diagnostics data uh, some of them integrate with Azure diagnostics so that it pulls yeah the, the same data that you'd see on the portal mm. uh, plus um, data that's on the server that the portal's not providing so what
1: what would what would the alternative look like if you had to do all that
0: stuff yourself
3: uh, man there's there's so much logging that's already done for you. Uh, you just have to kind of turn it on, dial the, tweak the right knobs with Azure. Uh, but then at the end of the day, all of these logs need to be shipped to, to storage, uh, Azure storage, and then you have to pull those down and uh, and pour through them, look at, you know, correlate uh, the the date, the date timestamps. And those aren't uh, files,
1: so you can't just like pull up your favorite file parsing tool and look through them,
2: right?
3: You could. You could use, uh, you know, a file parsing tool if, if you... Uh, if you knew how to uh, how to get that uh, that schema correctly, okay. uh, there's you know, some of that information goes into table storage as well, and you can go through that. But at the end of the day, you know, if if you have a, a third party tool that pulls that information for you and gives you a dashboard,
2: yeah. with
4: all the information,
3: to me that's totally worth it.
2: Well, me- I
4: I think the problem is is the aggregation. You know, in our last project, we had 28 instances running, and they're all generating the same data and storing those files. You know in the same place on all their hard drives, right? But there's 28 instances. And so it's nice to have a service that aggregates all that. So at a glance, you can see how the solution is performing as a whole. And if you wanna see what individual instances are doing, you can drill down and look at that too. So it aggregates all that information for you.
0: Very good. But I also think that Azure is looking at a different level of the, the application. Like Back all the way up here, you started this conversation with it was scaling well, we could see it in distress and add more instances with a slider what does distress look like? What is that?
4: I, th- I think you can use the same. So for us, um, at least in, in, in the solution that we, we recently built here, um, it, 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 I think you use your tr- the traditional, the same, the same indicators that you would use for scaling and stressing a system in a traditional model. You look at memory, you look at CPU, you know, if it's a web role, you're looking at You know, how IIS is handling threads, how IIS is queuing up different threads, or any threads being stuck in processing during the web request. It's the same indicators you look at to determine whether or not we need more web roles in our traditional model. Except in this model, adding those web roles is so much easier once you realize there's a problem.
0: Is this really just PerfMon data? Are you looking at requests queued and requests per second?
4: Yep, 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 absolutely. But then you're also with the dashboards provided in the Azure portal, you're able to see memory utilization. Well, not memory utilization in the in the, in the Azure dashboard. You get that through something like New Relic. Right. But you're able to see CPU utilization. Um, you know, the the Azure portal doesn't provide a whole lot of information. I think back to Tiago's earlier point. Something like something using something like New Relic, where you're able to see, you know. Memory utilization, CPU utilization, memory utilization sliced across different services that are running on your different instances. Right. If you have your 28 instances, how much of those 28 instances, how much of that memory is being used for your application? How much of it's being used by back-end processes? Yeah. There's just so much information that's available there that allows you to do things like, you know, make make decisions around, hey, our, our solution is using 75% five of the CPU on these 28 instances. We definitely mm. need to scale out. It obviously needs more, more CPU, or we need to go back and look at so PerfMon data, understand where threads are sticking, why sessions are being held open so long. So the traditional indicators are at play as well.
0: Yeah, you know, as having done a lot of instrumentation of web apps, I rarely run out of CPU. I often run out of threads. So for me, seeing how many requests are queued is the best measure because the correct number of queued requests should be zero. As soon as that number starts to climb, you know, okay, well, machines are, are now buried. They, they can't serve all the requests coming in. I could use more machines.
3: Sure, and we actually ran into that, that exact same problem uh, when we did the first load test. We were we were watching the, the Azure portal, and we would see the the requests starting to spike after we get, we hit a certain level, and they would spike and spike and spike and hit a certain point, where it just, there was a cliff. Right. And uh, and and at that point, we didn't have the uh, the the. New Relic, uh, logging, uh, any of this yet. We weren't hooked up to New Relic. So we were just kind of trying to correlate all this information, trying to figure out what's going on. And we uh, we eventually found out by going through the, the, the performance counters, looking at those requests and, and, and figuring out what happened. And, and we did realize that the, the we were serving up too many requests uh, to a point that we bottlenecked the IIS uh, servers. The requests are getting queued. And, and then uh, they were eventually getting dropped out right so we ended up uh to clean it up We just kind of started going through an asynchronous asynchronous process uh for some of the, the the heavier requests
1: did you guys say you're using the system center monitoring pack to look at uh, some of that stuff
3: no we are not because the that the client would have to be running uh SCOM, uh in-house and they they are not uh running that so but that, that uh. that's definitely an option Right?
1: It's an expensive you, option though, huh?
3: Well, yeah. If, you, if you're already using SCOM, uh, I think uh, it'd be a good way to, to to get your information instead of going to uh, a third party like New Relic or App Dynamics, Right. that would be because you already paid for it. But uh, in our case, we, we we couldn't use that because we'd have to, to pitch uh, them to buy SCOM before we could suggest it.
1: Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Guess what time it is. Wow. It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's the time for the second year. Of the .NET Rocks Fan Club Giveaway. Awesome. We're into year two now. So uh, every show we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, and today's winner is Ricardo Campos from Northampton, England. Ah, Congratulations, Ricardo. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Ricardo. And uh, he he wins that from Telerik. It's got everything that Telerik does in one box. It's a $2,000 value. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to dotnetrocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, and answer a few questions, you'll be a member of the fan club. And uh, every year we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Last year, Rob Corbett was our winner, and he won a big honking machine custom designed by Richard and myself. And he was from Canada, wasn't he? Indeed, from the Ottawa area. Absolutely. So it's real. He got that email. He couldn't believe it.
0: So you make make sure your email address is correct. That was a fun day for us too, wasn't it? It was great. Yeah, good fun. And so uh, come up, sign up and be a part of this. We'll give away something every week. It may be this year, you'll be the one winning the five grand. And I can't even imagine what we're going to build next December. Oh, it's going to be insane. But let us ask the guys, Jeff, Diago, I give you five grand to build gadgets. What would you get? Or buy gadgets. Buy gadgets. Oh, man. Man,
4: I'm so used to designing on a budget. I don't know what I would do with five grand.
0: <laughs> well, it is a budget. It's a big budget, but it's a budget. <laughs>
4: yeah. I could do. A lot. I think we could do a lot, Tiago. Well, um, I just got a Raspberry Pi
3: for Christmas, so I'm nice. still trying to figure out what I what I can do with that thing and what things I, I I'd probably buy a bunch of uh, um, uh, peripherals, accessories for that. Maybe uh, trying to trying to do a media center. Maybe a big screen TV to go with that. Uh,
2: I don't know. Something, How many you could like buy? That. What
1: five hundred Raspberry Pi's for f- yeah, uh, that? <laughs> yeah, more than that.
0: Yeah, to think about a Raspberry Pi. What would you do with a hundred Raspberry Pies? <laughs> or, or a thousand?
2: <laughs> I would conquer the world.
0: I could put helicopter blades on them and fly them around. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you know, I've been looking at some of these automated uh, autonomous flying systems. So quad rotor copters and and, uh, and uh, six rotor copters that are completely autonomous flying. It's, um, you know, Skynet's on its way. It's right there. You can look at it in your face. You can roll it yourself.
1: Yeah. You might want to think about building a room, you know, with several
0: connects and large screen TVs and stuff. I
1: mean, you could do a lot with five grand. Yep, for Same. sure.
0: Yeah, I, I'm going to jump back in on this whole conversation about instrumentation because I think it's a huge issue, uh, just to being able to understand what's going on with your app, e- being able to assess this concept of my machine is in distress. As we, you know, we talked about what Azure measures, things like bandwidth being moved and, and CPU usage. And then you've got what the web services can measure in terms of requests per second and requests queued, but that still doesn't tell you anything about what your app is actually struggling with. So is that where you brought New Relic into the equation?
3: Yeah, so this, this goes back to that correlation uh, idea. You know We can get we can see the graphs and see when things are spiking from a CPU perspective or from a, a bandwidth perspective. But what those third-party tools do that is really neat is the ability for you to pick a specific point in a chart or in a, in a table and drill in. Uh, to the level of the, the area in the application or the uh, if it's exceptions that are being thrown to see the ex- the, the exact uh, exception that's being thrown. And if you are handling if you are sprinkling some of the these uh, monitoring uh, APIs within your code as well, you would ha- you'd have additional data to, to, to drill through even things like uh, database right uh, it, it will tell me, uh, down to the uh, the query level and give me the query if i if i allow it to uh, that is bottlenecking some of my by uh, processing sure. so those are things that you can't get by just looking at a graph of cpu utilization
0: or just rolling your own log system to capture exceptions and throw them down can you get down to the method level can you i'm thinking of uh... Uh, preemptives uh, analytics tool. It's in Studio 2010 and 2012, where you can actually, you know, lay that into your your .NET assemblies. I don't even know if that works in in the web role.
3: Yeah, I, I haven't used the print the preemptive stuff, but I'm I'm assuming whatever level of of monitoring, logging, diagnostics you want, it's really up to you as you're designing your app. Sure. It just you know you can weave your IL with code, or you can sprinkle. Stuff through code, yeah. Uh, you know, it was as much as your heart's content.
2: But
0: logging is not free. The observer effect applies.
2: Sure.
1: Yeah, I can imagine you might get into trouble with third-party uh, licenses if your, you know, instances go get really high. Do you have a problem with that?
3: Yeah, we did.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, you uh, did. We we use a third-party component, and Jeff can tell you a lot about uh, about this. Are you talking <laughs> about was, uh, down a down a log
4: for net? The
3: issue well, we that. was one and then, uh, also the, uh, uh, the
4: Verilux stuff. Oh yeah. So, oh uh, yeah, the license, yeah, this is, this is, uh, so there's not a lot of companies out there that, that have a licensing model that will work well with the cloud. Right. And so, you know, we were, we were fortunate enough with, uh, you know, there, there was a very critical component that we needed, um, for this project. There was a third party component for biometrics and, uh, you know, we 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 found a, a you know a, a great offering, and we prototyped, and we thought, man, this is going to be this is going to be really really nice. And you know, we told the client about it; everybody was excited. And we were fortunate enough that once we kind of dug in and really really understood, kind of, you know, we didn't dig really deep on their licensing model because you typically, you know, once you don't understand the price, and you understand how many pieces you're going to need. You know, there was it was there was just a few caveats in terms of, well, hey, you guys are deploying this to the cloud. Yeah, here's how you do it. Okay, great. Um, and they were able to give us a model to do that with, but. Uh, so we were fortunate that, fortunate with that with that product, but there were other products that um, you know they just simply could not give us a licensing model that would work in the cloud. Uh, either they're either their their licensing was tied to a specific machine config, and we have no control over. You know how Azure is healing itself. So if, if, if an instance goes bad, it's going to bring it down and spin up a new VM, lay your application down on it and heal itself is what they call it, quote-unquote healing. And then in, that, in that case, if it had to relicense, you've already you know, spent one of your licenses hmm. on a machine that is no longer being used. And, and, and they couldn't provide a licensing model that would work with what we were trying to do on the cloud. So as you're kind of building your solution from an architecture perspective and thinking about third-party tools, that's definitely something that needs to, that needs to it take, take some of your thought Um, is just understanding the licensing model will it work on the cloud platform so if I'm understanding
0: this correctly it's if the licensing model is based on the machine yeah the hardware you're doomed like that because machine is such a transient concept inside of Azure
3: yeah what they were doing is they they were taking some kind of uh, uh, hash of uh, several pieces of information about the server and they were sending that uh, at the the startup of the app they were sending that to to their licensing servers oh uh, and and uh, Kind of locking that license to a server. Oh man! Uh, when you do nah. that, you know, in on a cloud, that doesn't really go very well. Well, all no. of a sudden,
0: that little slider you were dialing up and down—it's a much bigger deal. <laughs>
3: oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that's actually a, a great point because um, we were tied to the, the 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 we had a max number of uh, instances that we could scale up to um, because of the number of licenses that we we purchased. So if we had uh, twenty licenses. We were limited to scaling up to only twenty instances.
0: Mm. Right, and and but even then, now if they're self healing, that's consuming licenses that you're not even using.
3: Uh, I, yeah, so we we kind of lucked out that um, the the third party component we were using had some code that uh, some APIs that we could hook into and write code to release the licenses, and then uh, hook that into the the event handlers for Azure when the at the, the instances were. Uh, being shut down or starting up
1: surfing the web yeah you ever try to surf the web on your phone it's a little small especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports oh yeah yeah we've been using it for 15 years you know the coolest new feature i think is the new silverlight report viewer what's cool about it of course is it's both native silverlight for printing but it's also got PDF support so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire makes it a lot more efficient
0: well we've been looking for a good solution for silverlight data viewing
1: yeah it's a great product i i think i'm going to order it not on that no not on here i'll go to my desk first active reports from component 1
0: smarter components for smarter developers
1: so what are the, what were some of the other pain points that you uh that you had to deal with you may be able to save our listeners some long nights of frustrating work.
3: Well, I have, uh, I had a, a lot of issues with the emulator up front, uh, which was really, really hard to deal with because part of the team didn't have the same issues, and then a couple of the guys started having the issue, and it went away while I constantly had the same issue. Um, mm. And we still couldn't quite put our fingers on it exactly, uh, but uh, working with the emulator was... A little bit slower, especially for the size of deployment that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time we we had to to f five the solution and, and run it, it would take anywhere from a minute to five minutes to start up. Uh, which, you know, if you're if you're not doing test room development, you're just kind of running to see how things are going, can be kind of you know detrimental to your your productivity.
1: So, did you end up going uh, developing right on the on the uh, on Azure itself?
3: No, we. Uh, we ended up um, I got to a point where I couldn't I couldn't run that productivity uh, detriment so I just I would write some code do pair programming with uh, my colleagues on their machine and and uh, get a lot of stuff done that way debugging with them um, just to avoid the emulator at certain at certain points and then uh, another another uh, point that I think Jeff can speak to a little bit more since we caught this earlier in the and the process was via the Service Bus, being able to use that and and the the emulator.
4: Yeah. So the you know being in a services oriented architecture or platform like Azure, you know you gotta you gotta keep you gotta keep in mind that uh, your your calls to the different artifacts, whether it's the Service Bus or the cache or even Blob Storage, where you're where, where you're storing files or other data, you're calling web services, you know, down under the hood and Every once in a while, especially if you're using those very heavily, you're sending thousands and thousands and thousands of messages a day. More than that, maybe mm. you're, you're going to run into issues where a message doesn't make it through, or there's you know transport errors, and just to be able to handle those gracefully, um, you know, upfront in our Azure experience, we didn't handle those very gracefully, and there was a lot of anomalies from yeah. hey, well, I'm not you know we're experiencing this issue intermittently, we're not able to reproduce it, you know, then you'd find out way deep down in the bowels of the code, you know, parsing through the log files and trying to understand what went wrong. You know, a lot of times it'd be a transient issue or a or a, or a you know transport error, Cause you it's know, from the, the way <laughs> the internet
1: the internet fails once in a while.
4: Exactly, And which, which you're going to deal with when you're dealing with a services-oriented architecture. So, um, you know, transient fault retry. What's what's the name of that framework that we use, Tiago?
3: It I'm was, drawing a uh, blank.
4: Microsoft's
3: uh, pattern and practice team. They they have uh, application blocks for uh, transient fault handling. Nice. Uh, so we we uh, started using that and sprinkling some of that around uh, uh, kind of on the, on the base classes for where we did service buzz and um, caching, especially caching was a big one. I would actually, I, I had uh, uh, a little service that would ping the cache just to see the health of it, and uh, it's the shared caching one, and it, it would go down uh, quite a bit uh, certain days. I think they were doing some updates those days, and uh, the transit fault handling just kind of saved our butt because uh, it would apply a, a retry strategy. And, nice. uh, you know, every, every you know, minute or a few seconds, it would retry up to a certain n- number of retries, and then it would throw an exception.
0: And that's one of those really, it sounds like a simple chunk of code, and it just isn't.
3: Mm-hmm. No, yeah. And, and we also got into some kind of creative uh, things with the service bus to overcome uh, uh, one of their uh, their shortcomings, which is you don't have service bus in the emulator. You <laughs> have to use the cloud uh, service bus. You have to have a, an account subscription. Uh, and and we had four developers writing code, and, and every time that we ran the emulator and we had to test some of the code, that would send messages to a queue. Um, we didn't want to be stepping all over each other's queue, and, and uh, I would put something on the queue, and they would you know uh, run their code and retrieve the, the queue message at the same time. So uh, I think at the, at the end of the day, Jeff had to come up with uh, some creative things to to address that by giving us all uh, separate queues uh, based on our machine names and and, and things of that matter, just concatenating some extra data for the purposes of the emulator.
0: It sort of begs the question: Should you just be developing on Azure all the time and incurring those per hour charges? Mm.
4: You know, we kind of we ended up kind of moving to that model towards the end. We, you know, we wanted to we wanted to have we wanted to be able to develop and share data share. You know, the service bus queue, share the cache, and share all the different artifacts in the cloud uh, so that we could all kind of be on the same development environment, if you will. But you can't do that when you're kind of using all your local emulator stuff. So, But, but you still want to be able to debug. So we ended up putting everything on the cloud into kind of a cloud development environment that Tiago was alluding to earlier, mm. where we each had our own service bus queue so our application could have its own queue, but we'd all share cache, we'd all share the database. We'd all share blob storage where we were storing a bunch of files for the for the application, mm. um, but we we would we would run the compute piece or the the actual VM piece on our dev machine on our on our laptop. That way, we could still step through the code and debug, but we were sharing everything else.
1: So, would it make sense to have a a an actual Windows VM virtual machine running Visual Studio in the cloud? Would you have any more access to the Azure stuff there than you would running it on your desktop?
4: You know, not the way that we were doing it because we were using the the hosted service, the cloud. Uh, you know, with the with the web roles and the so we right. would need to be able to spin up. You know, we need to be able to spin up a role environment. Our, our our code required a role environment, so you had to use an emulator. We yeah. the only place you can get a role environment is in the hosted service in the cloud, or on your local emulator. and And, and having on the local emulator allowed us to basically press F5, and debug, put breakpoints, step through. Uh, when you you wouldn't be able to do that if you if you you know pushed it out to the cloud and sure. ran it to test it right yeah I, I think uh, and I just had a, a good
3: uh, exchange with one of the guys on the service bus team uh, because i ha- I'm gonna run into the same problem in my next project uh, and uh, I think one of the recommendations is if we can instead of coding directly against the uh, the uh, service bus apis for Azure uh, to mm-hmm. code uh, for the uh, the service bus for Windows Server, which is largely compatible. Uh, Maybe even abstract those since the APIs are similar. Abstract that into uh, something that's particular to our app. And then uh, uh, when we deploy, just uh, change that up using some dependency injection. We can change uh, which API we're pointing to.
1: Yeah, very good. What about security? You knew we were going to get around here sooner or later. Do you have any issues with security?
3: Um, Well... uh, one of the, the upfront requirements that we had was uh, PII compliance, personal personally identifiable information. Uh, and Jeff was involved early on in the project where you know, he gathered a lot of those requirements. I can, I can let him talk about that.
4: Yeah, for, from our client's perspective, PII, as Tiago said, was really important. And so we were restoring, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb. So from a, from a uh, system integrity perspective, from a you know, physical location, Microsoft's got all that covered. Microsoft gives you the underpinnings and the foundation to build really secure systems. Um, so we were able to, you know, kind of build on top of that for PII compliance. All we had to really worry about was our data. We didn't have to worry about, obviously, physical architecture, the server architecture.
2: Hmm. Um,
4: any data that was at rest, that was PII-relevant, we would encrypt. Otherwise, you know, beyond that, there wasn't there wasn't any issue with security. Okay. And, we, you know, we had it security audited from a... Uh, our client employed a, you know, internal and third-party security audits on the system, and they all came back really clean.
0: Nice, that's great. But it, it really comes down to, I mean, if you're dealing with e-commerce, it's two things: it's the PII piece, and it's the PCI piece. It's, you know, handling yeah, the, the guy's PCI, personal information.
4: The PCI we didn't do, and the PCI pieces—they, they, correct me if I'm wrong, Tiago. The latest news that I heard is that, you know, as of, as of now, Azure is not PCI compliant simply because they won't release the audits. Uh, What's the post- acronym there? PCI, PCI? compliant.
1: What does it stand for?
4: Oh, goodness. Acronym that's
1: police that's
4: right. here. Acronym. I I couldn't tell you. Credit cards. Processing. Okay. Yeah, know. Essentially, it's storing credit card data or financial data.
1: Ah, okay. And did you guys have to uh, work around the, the COPPA laws for uh, under 13 people? Or was that not an issue?
4: I was going to say, as far as I know, that wasn't an issue. Um, I know that the PCI... Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the PI compliance... Was the was the important one for them? Um, even, even then, once we got into PI, uh, PII compliance, uh, the lines were pretty blurred in terms of what was required. Mm-hmm. You know, this this client of ours is dealing with minor information on minors, uh, you know, right now from all 50 states and, and looking to do it internationally as well. And so, PII compliance was really important. But even then, once we got into it with their lawyers and looking at all the information uh, that we needed to to implement. To make it PII-compliant, the lines were pretty fuzzy. But at the end of the day, Microsoft, once again, just to reiterate this point, provided everything we needed to make a PII-compliant solution. All we had to do was encrypt the data at rest. Everything else was in place. Awesome. Yeah. And what he's not saying there is that the,
3: uh, a lot of the, uh, the data at rest was really uh, image files. Uh, so it makes, it makes for a really interesting storage mechanism and retrieval when you're dealing with uh, photos, uh, but they're all encrypted. <laughs>
0: Crypted photos that's got to cost some cpu overhead that's not a trivial thing to do
3: yeah yeah we had yeah. we rolled uh, our own little uh uh bits to uh, to decrypt and encrypt based on some keys that we re- retrieved from uh some services on the client side um and uh it worked out well at the end um uh, it does add a little bit of cpu overhead but sure. it wasn't anything that uh, was a showstopper
0: it also gets back to this idea that compliance has a cost, right? Not just the, the assessment, but you're going to incur a certain processing overhead, which Azure measures and bills you for every time you do this. Absolutely. And, and that's, uh, to me, is fascinating. It's like actually being able to assign costs to, to that kind of stuff. But I also appreciate, and may, maybe I'm overstating this, Azure is not going to make you compliant. You still have to do that yourself. Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely. Correct.
0: So, what about load testing? How did you evaluate the app being able to handle a certain number of users?
4: Tiago, you want to take this one?
3: Um, sure. So, with the load testing, and, and this is, I was kind of torn on this because the, the client was really big into uh, load testing, stress testing their apps internally. Um, and uh, even though in Azure it's really easy to provision the machines and, and bring them down for the test. Um, they were they were using this um, to to figure out uh, whether the app met their uh, their standards um, and it ended up being kind of expensive and it, it it took a long time to get to find that sweet spot right uh, versus what, something that I, I kind of like to call proactive monitoring where we you know we just add a lot of diagnostic monitoring logging to the app and uh, and let it run and, and and as it just like what we did with the low test let it run and see where the the app starts breaking down, and we scale up until we find that sweet spot, right? Right. So, uh, sort but, of the you know, test the of the the failure day, they, model. They really needed that low test to, to feel comfortable with the solution. Mm-hmm. So we did that, uh, and it costs some money—not uh, not just our consulting time, but you know, the the Azure cost. Um, but something that would 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 be a really good idea for this that that we could have implemented early on was just the ability to auto scale. Well, that's
1: that's been the, the sort of holy grail question for Azure ever since it's been yeah uh, you know, ever since rolled out. Right. You know, is there a way to do that? Uh,
3: there, the API is there, um, and there's actually some third party uh, monitoring uh, uh, solutions that provide some auto scaling uh, from their portals. Uh, I don't think New Relic does that at this point, uh, but I've seen a couple of other ones that do. Uh, and uh, and there's definitely an API that's available for for writing auto-scaling code. Um, and Microsoft provides an application block, just like the trans and fault Handling, they have an auto-scaling application block. Oh, wow. That, that makes it a little bit easier to write that code. Um, so you're not dealing directly with APIs. It's just a little bit um, more abstracted.
1: Well, that seems uh, like the way to go rather than trying to stress test ahead of time because you never stress testing you know, doesn't really doesn't do it. I mean, it's good measure, but it's, as you say, expensive. And as Richard likes to say, users are weirder than tests. Yeah. You know, they, they do things that you don't expect. Yeah. And so
3: and I think when you, when you go into this auto scaling discussion, you, one thing that you really need to know is your thresholds, right? You need to know when you're going to scale up and down, Yeah. Um, which it, it's, it's hard to tell up front. Uh So, Load testing does have, you know, that benefit that it kind of gives you the, the, uh, the uh, upfront uh, thresholds so you know what to expect.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and the auto-scaling would just be the, the, the sugar on top that now that you have those figures, build, build in the auto-scale so that your app runs at a minimal, but it scales up automatically and then back down as needed with those thresholds in mind.
0: Well, and in a worst-case model... Let's talk about a worst-case model, right? If you, With auto-scaling, you could have one user per instance. And yeah. now you get into, should I tune my software so that I can get two users per instance and reduce the cost? Yeah. You know, that's really what it comes down to. Tuning becomes a cost issue, not a, not a performance issue. If I can even get one, the app running well for one person on one instance, I've got something to work from. Now mm-hmm. we just sort of figure out what does the scaling model look like seems to me it's a real wrestling match between, you know, what do you put your cycles into? Now that we have this automated elasticity and we can just keep lighting instances whenever we want, you know, do you bother doing a lot of performance tuning?
2: And
4: I think you get that with, uh, you know, I think that you, I think, I think you're making a really good point because once you can get the system out there and you have a way to auto scale it so that it's not going to go down because it w- runs out of resources, it may not be very efficient, but you can definitely tune it later, which I think we, we did that. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up, you know, after one or two iterations of it being in production, we ended up putting in some, some extra monitoring to understand exactly what the user load was in production all the time. Right. You know, we were able to get that information from stress, but we wanted to see what was actually happening in production and correlate that with what we were seeing in the system in terms of, uh, you know, resource utilization. And once we had that information, we were able to go back and, and pinpoint through the logs, through analyzing the logs, what areas of the system were less efficient, and we did, I I think we, you know, I'm not sure how to put a number on it, but I think we made some significant improvements in performance and and resource utilization, making it a more streamlined system over the, you know, subsequent iterations after we, you know, put that logging in place, but auto-scaling, I think, is is kind of the 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 get-you-out-the-door kind of first step.
0: So, what did you use to generate the load in the first place?
4: Uh, They used a load runner.
0: Okay, so that's what's expensive. Load runner is not a cheap product.
4: LoadRunner is right. not cheap, and also having a, a full scale stress environment that mirrors production, especially oh, yeah. production is meant to have, you know, eighty thousand hits a day. Right. You know, have a have a separate environment that mimics that is very expensive as well.
0: Yeah, you ran a whole other second site at maximum load for some extended period of time. Correct. Jeez. That's not a good idea. No, but I also love the idea that that entire test experience, from beginning to end in you know, recruiting lo- load runner and running it for that duration and all those things there's a number load testing's not free mm-hmm. here's what it actually costs to run that set of tests mm-hmm. I, and that it was always something we struggled with before the cloud came along with this per minute billing model
4: and i think it's i think it's uh, one of the one of the challenges we had or maybe it's not a challenge but one of the things we had to go through and and you know we've heard some other teams that have worked with azure here that they've had to go through as well is helping the the customer understand upfront, you know, hey, you know, when you have these conceptual diagrams during the sales cycle or during the discovery phase of the project, and you say, hey, we're gonna have these environments, you can have these environments, and hey, listen, you can have as many environments as you want, and then just kind of underscoring, but there's a cost associated with that and helping them understand that, you know, it may be in their traditional model or in the past, when they're developing on-premise, they've already invested the money in those boxes and because it is so hard to tell how much that costs. They just don't keep track of it. They just know they have a stress environment out there that they can use when they need it, and so they want to mimic that experience in the cloud, but helping them break that mindset of, this is not the same. You're paying for this every minute this is up. Exactly.
1: So, Tiago and Jeff, what's next for you guys? What are you, what are you working on now?
3: Well, uh, we're both uh, uh, working on new projects, separate projects, uh, Mine is going to be an Azure project again. I don't, uh, Jeff can speak to his. So excited about that.
4: Yeah, I'm doing a uh, a new uh, custom portal in a pharmaceutical distribution industry. And so, uh, uh, yeah, just custom.net portal solution, shopping cart, the whole nine yards. I think it'll be it'll be a lot of fun.
1: Sweet. Well, you got, I can't tell you how valuable your uh, experience in sharing that with our listeners is. It's uh, just been great. And this is the the kind of stuff that, uh, the kind of reasons why people listen to us so much. So thank you very much.
3: Thank you guys for having thanks us. Thanks for having us.
1: All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on.NET Rocks and other experts in the field. We'll right now. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. at www.dotnetrocks.com. by the